Uh, welcome, everyone, to LSE for the last day of the LSE Festival. Uh, the theme of this year's festival is Shape the World, and events have been held throughout this week as part of a whole year of activities at LSE exploring how social science can tackle global issues. My name is Jessica Templeton. I'm the director of LSE 100, and for those of you who are unfamiliar, this is uh, LSE's flagship interdisciplinary course. It's taken by all of the first and second year undergraduates. And over the last two years in LSE 100, we have been looking at the issues of food security and then artificial intelligence. And I'm very pleased to bring those two themes together today with our panel. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome our two panelists. Uh, we have Ria Sen, who is a preparedness and resilience officer in the technology division of the United Nations World Food Program. Uh, with expertise in disaster and climate risk management, RIA is responsible for enhancing the readiness and capacity of national governments to respond to disasters. RIA is particularly interested in information communication technology for sustainable climate resilient development. I'd also like to welcome Carolyn Steele. Carolyn is a London-based architect, academic, and writer, and a leading thinker on food and cities. Her first book, Hungry City, received international acclaim and established her as an influential voice in a wide variety of fields across academia, industry, and the arts. Her latest book, Setopia, which I have here and have really enjoyed reading, uh, lays out a vision for change. It addresses food and the, our relationship to food, and it lays out a vision for change and how we might thrive on our crowded and overheating planet. Um, unfortunately, our third panelist, Eugenie Dejua has injured her knee and is unable to join us today, but that will give us more time to talk to Ria and Carolyn. So welcome to you both. Uh, before we start... Before we start, just the usual reminders. Um, if you could all put your phones on silent, please. I would really appreciate, appreciate it. This event is being recorded, and we hope that a podcast will be available soon. If you wish to tweet about the event, the hashtags are Shape the World and LSE Festival. Um, we're going to kick off the discussion with some introductory comments from the panelists, and then we're going to open the floor to all of you for questions. But before we turn to our panelists, I have a question for all of you. How many, maybe we can just do this old-fashioned way, show of hands, how many of you think that technology will be pivotal in achieving a sustainable future? We have quite a lot of techno-optimists in the room. That is fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, we'll turn to, to you two then. Um, Ria, would you like to kick us off? If I can ask you, to, to begin with, um, what do you think the ideal sustainable future actually looks like, and what role do you think technology could, could play in achieving that vision? Thanks so much, Jessica, for the introduction, and I'm really excited to be back to LSE. I used to be a student here, and it's great to be on the other side of the room at this time. I think that this question is um, quite important, and I, and I believe that it would perhaps drive a lot of our discussions today. Because if we didn't believe in the potential that technology has to bridge development gaps and to achieve sustainable development, we probably wouldn't be sitting here. So with that in mind, 
I believe myself to be um, someone who is an optimist with regards to technology. I believe that technology can be an accelerator and an enabler for sustainable development. But that being said, I'm a bit cautious to equate technology with solutions. Technology can provide us potential for acceleration in achievement of particular goals, but it isn't the solution in itself. And I think that it's important to um, outline that it's not a silver bullet. Even in my daily work, I'm reminded of that in the disaster and climate risk management space. So with that in mind, I would like to share a little bit in terms of um, my um, feeling for um, a future which is um, inclusive, which is sustainable, and I think that technology could have a big role in that. And one of my um, biggest concerns as we're moving quickly towards 2030, where we have um, our targets in terms of the Paris Agreement, but also for achievement of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, is that we do not exceed the 1.5 degrees cap of um, the projected, um, let's say, warmth for the future. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges at this point in time with um, our um, unchecked type of production and consumption patterns. We would need to use technologies to help in, in coming up with solutions to meet those challenges. I think technology also is critical for uh, bridging the social justice issue because um, development gaps also equate to social gaps, also relate to gender gaps, and also poverty-related issues. And I feel like we need to be cognizant of that as we're debating and discussing how technology can be used to plug in and meet those development gaps. Another aspect, I think, is um, how technology affords opportunities for new types of cooperation, whether it be north-south cooperation models, south-south cooperation models, or triangular cooperation models, which are gaining precedence at this point in time. But I think another factor is that we do operate within um, a global multilateral space. There are particular rules governing trade, goods, and service flows, and we need to be cognizant of that as well as we debate um, more of, um, let's say, the social justice um, issues with respect to technology because it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And finally, I think technology um, is critical for um, finding solutions to some of the biggest development challenges. And um, there have been some interesting progresses in the climate space, particularly whether it be in the, in the sector of renewable energy, whether it be in the sector of resilient infrastructure, and um, a lot of other interesting areas that I will outline in um, my following interventions. And I think machine learning can have a very exciting potential in that respect. Finally, I think that um, an element of horizon scanning and um, understanding of the global architecture with respect to um, technology is quite important. And um, that's another aspect which I would um, touch upon in my um, following intervention. So that's a little bit of the future that I would aspire to. So not compromising on the needs of the future generation while satisfying the needs of the present generation. And this definition is, of course, not new. It was adopted during the Brundtland Commission for Sustainable Development um, well, before, um, this, um, well before this period where the global goals are being deliberated. Thank you. Carolyn, would you like to share your thoughts with us? Yes. Um, again, to try and answer your question, which was what would a sustainable future look like? Well, yeah. for me, um, a sustainable future is one in which we value food, and it really is as simple as that. How can it be that simple? Well, 
it can be that simple because food is the most valuable and important thing in our lives that we have to actually work in order to produce. Um, and food consists of living things that we kill so we can live. So to expect food to be cheap is really weird. <laughs> and I think we are now seeing what effectively, you know, a couple of hundred years of not understanding um, that if we, as it were, mess with nature in order to kind of give this illusion of cheap food, uh, that, you know, it's, it's actually going to come back to, to haunt us. I mean, farming the way we do it now is arguably the most destructive human activity. And actually, we can't carry on as we are. So that's really interesting. But I'm actually an architect by training. And so food is my lens for looking at the world. And um, I guess my question is absolutely, you know, how do we dwell in future? What does a good life in the future look like? So it's not just about how we're going to feed ourselves. It's also the question of um, what does the world look like if we, if we, if we value food again? Um, because that puts food at the centre of everything, not just, as it were, kind of, you know, the way in which your food arrives on your dinner plate or whatever, but also how we spend our time, how, what our relationship with nature is like, how we organise our cities and countryside. I mean, just everything comes from this. Um, and in fact, the, the book that you kindly have brought along today, which came out two days ago, which is very exciting, um, it, it came from a drawing I did. And the drawing was um, attempting to see where food sits in our world. And I, I drew a piece of food and then a, a plate around the food, then a table around the plate, then people around the table. And I started drawing arrows, you know, sharing, connecting, family, and then a cook figure who may be a mother or, you know, but anyway, love, nurturing, gratitude, question mark. Then where did that food come from? A market. Where did the market come from? Well, you know, it sat inside a city. Where did the city sit? It sat in countryside. Where did the countryside sit? In nature. Where does nature sit? Well, kind of, you know, I did a wiggly line at the end of the page and wrote universe in the bottom right-hand corner. And this book is like a section through that drawing. So it goes from a plate of food out to the universe, asking at every sort of scale, expanding scale, how we can use the lens of food to ask what is a good life. Um, now, obviously, the question of our relationship with technology is massive in this. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think for me, I, I would sum it up because I seem to have already been talking rather a lot. But anyway, um, basically what I would say is that, um, well, OK, I'm going to quote a brilliant architect called Cedric Price, who has a wonderful quote. I think some of you may know it. He says, technology is the answer. But what was the question? You know, and I think this is really, really important. For me, we've got more technology than we know what to do with. And, I, I, and I'm not saying more wouldn't be good, it would. But I really agree with Ria. There's a massive issue about our relationship with it. And I think we have a philosophy deficit, not a technology deficit. And that's really my big, my big thing. So, again, bringing back to food, if you, if you realise that we've forgotten the value of life because we don't value this thing that is, you know, basically our biggest connection with one another and with nature, then it shows you that we've got a massive value schism at the heart of all our decision-making, and we have to heal that before we can hope to have an imagining of what a sustainable future life looks like. I could go on, but I, you know, Please as I say... Well, no, I mean, I, I think we'll, it'll all fill out in the fullness of time. Mm. Wonderful. Well, thank you both very much for that. Um, I think it would be really interesting, before we get into some of the 
kind of specifics around technology. I mean, what role do you think technology, you've, you've touched on this a little bit, but what role do you think technology plays in farming now and food production, especially in the context of the ongoing environmental crisis yeah. that we're experiencing? And what, I mean, do you think that there's scope for improving on what huh. we're doing? Yes. It's realistic. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, realistic, that's really interesting. So, I mean, one of the problems we've got, I think, at the moment is that our vision of what is and is not realistic or is, or, or is not possible is highly, highly prescribed. By 200 years of... Okay, so we're coming off the end of 250 years of burning fossil fuels to make life easy. That has to come to an end. That's interesting to begin with. Secondly, we have come off the back of the Enlightenment, if you like, and this idea that nature is there to be manipulated for our benefit. And we're seeing where that's leading. I mean, you know, we all know about climate change. I mean, far fewer people out in the world, I'm sure everyone in this room is highly informed and, you know, up to speed with what's going on, but there's a mass extinction that's underway, which could be even more deadly. I mean, it is looking like it's even more deadly. We've created this illusion of cheap food by externalising all the true costs of food, or most of them, so nature being a very obvious one, but, you know, uh, farming, food and farming are now responsible for something like a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, obviously, it's responsible for massive, mass deforestation. I'm sure everyone here knows about the Amazon currently. Um, this creation of cheap meat, which is really, really awful. So the, the whole invention of livestock production, um, this came actually with the railways. So this goes back at least 150 years. Um, but, you know, feeding grain to cattle, basically, which feeds 10 fewer people than if you just ate the grain mm -hmm. first, and it makes the cattle sick, so you have to pump them full of antibiotics, which, you know, it's all completely mad. In fact, uh, the wonderful farmer um, and farmer and kind of uh, environmentalist Simon Fairley called um, livestock, industrial livestock production the greatest ecological catastrophe of our time, you know, and it is. It's an absolute disaster. So, you know, soil depletion, water depletion, you know, and not, to, not to even mention, you know, what it's doing to our, our bodies and so on. So, um, and loss of biological diversity, but I mean, you know, with mass extinction underway, I guess that's fairly obvious. So we cannot go on feeding ourselves like this. We absolutely are at a crossroads. I'm sure Rhea in her world would, would, would agree with that. And then the question is, you know, we have many options open to us as to what to do. And I think these fall into two broad categories, and I'm very interested in, in that particular distinction. On the one hand, there are people who are kind of going, we've got to get smarter, we've got to use more technology, we've got to consolidate in cities and, you know, use everything going, you know, kind of GM, et cetera, et cetera, vertical farms, which is basically sticking plants in, you know, stacked greenhouses. Um, and then we have to let nature go back to just being nature. So we have to withdraw from nature, if you like. And then there's another ideological camp which basically says, no, what we need to do is actually work with nature. So it's, it's almost the opposite philosophy. And, you know, again, the UNN writes about this regenerative farming, which is basically understanding what nature does and letting it get on with it. And we can use technology to help us do that better. So, but it's a different mindset and they're, they're radically separate. So I'm with a latter camp, by the way. <laughs> Not that I'm trying to artificially polarise this conversation, but it is a polarised conversation. And I, I also believe polarisation in itself is dangerous. And that's another big philosophical issue we have to deal with. And we have, do we, do we live in a country where, you know, 
if you like, the Houses of Parliament is, has an oppositional design, etc., etc., and we've just been through the B word, so, you know, kind of... I mean, it's very interesting to me, I'll just say one more... I do talk a lot, sorry, but... Um, <laughs> Isn't it interesting how different politics feels in this country now that we've got C19 on our doorstep? Mm. Suddenly people have stopped all this mindless bickering and we're actually pulling together, and I find that really interesting. And it's nature. Mm. Coronavirus is nature telling us that we can't, you know, that, that we, there's something bigger than us out there that we have to pull together in order to deal with. So for me it's a really... Mm interesting lesson in terms of all these other natural phenomena that are telling us we have to pull together and we have to change. That, that is a perfect segue to your work, I think, Ria, and in terms of your experience with disaster, disaster sorry, risk management and resilience. So would you like to respond to those comments at all? Yeah, I mean, th thanks so much for sharing that insight. And I think um, the climate challenge is not just limited to a changing environment, but it's also cascading across many other different areas which are relevant to achievement of sustainability. For example, livelihoods, food security is what you touched upon, resilience of infrastructure, innovation, trade, health, and so on. So I think um, that cascading element is something that's um, critical to acknowledge when we're trying to address the sustainability issue, because sustainability has many dimensions. Oftentimes it's interpreted as an environmental-related sustainability, but that's quite a unidimensional understanding, and I think we need to nuance a little bit and unpack what does sustainability mean. And I think... Um, in this respect, um, technology is really important, but it's difficult at times to um, understand exactly what is meant by technology, because technology isn't just one item that's deployed and automatically it's a solution. It could be, for example, machine learning. It could be, for example, robotics. But we need to delve into those specifics to understand how the technology can meet the specific challenge at hand. And I think one of the biggest challenges in the tech space, which we're facing as well as on term of regulatory and legal issues and ethical issues. And I think as we're looking towards technology to give us some type of hope, we also need to be cognizant of the high risks that come with uh, deploying technological solutions. And that's also part of my work um, when I'm dealing with national governments. On the other hand, um, technology is also generating vast volumes of data. We have satellites giving us terabits of information. We have so much of information out there just waiting to be made sense of. And I think that's where we need to apply an interpretive capacity to understand what does this tech mean and how can we use it to enhance readiness to bigger planetary problems. And one of the biggest challenges, as has been outlined, is planetary limits. We're reaching a limit in terms of our planet's capacity to support human beings. 1.5 more Earths are required to actually satisfy the current level of consumption. Warning, alert, this is critical and we need immediate action. And at the UN side, whilst we are talking about normative policy framework, be it the Paris Agreement, be it the Sendai Framework, be it the Global Development Goals, they all converge on one thing, sustainability. And we need to be cognizant of the fact that this sustainability doesn't only begin with individual consumption, but also with the accountability of national governments 
technologies can be deployed to find some types of solutions, but if that is not accompanied with attendant policy mechanisms, with processes, with capacity, with also people's ability to interact well with that technology, the solutions are going to fail in the tech space, and even that optimism which technology is giving us today will be dissipated. So I think um, it's... You, you have a bit of a, a nuance on, on the, the, the bigger picture issues. And as you can see, the complexity of actually dealing with technology is something that's not just related to um, identifying technologies, which is some of the work that I'm, for example, doing at the United Nations, which could have potentials for good, but also understanding that those, those technologies can come with harms as well. And we have to counterbalance a bit our efforts on those sides and make sure that with every good, we're also preparing for some of the harms which might come. Thanks. Could you, could you give us some examples of what technology specifically could do? Yes. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think this segues a bit, a bit into the machine learning side of things. So um, one of the biggest areas which is um, being referred as a frontier technology and um, this is in a report that went to the UN Secretary General last year by the Commission on Science and Technology. That's the body mandated to um, monitor disruptive and potentially um, sustaining innovation that could be useful for meeting the development goals. And these two technologies, well, one of them is machine learning, and second one is not really a technology, but um, something that could be used to enhance our predictive capacity, which is big data. So these two areas have been identified. Now, I would like to say that machine learning is not equal to artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is a bigger field, repeat, not a technology. Machine learning is a subset within the field of AI. And within machine learning, we have another exciting strain called deep machine learning, which I'm super delighted that we are engaging with in the UN side of things as well. So let me explain a bit how machine learning can be used. We um, and this is with reference to some of my team working on the deep machine learning um, in the UN at this time, decided that the development challenge was um, how to undertake a rapid damage assessment post-disaster. Let me explain what is a rapid damage assessment. Let us take the case of Mozambique last year. Two devastating cyclones, Cyclone Kenneth and Cyclone Idai, struck the country. Mozambique is a least developed country, which is already quite vulnerable and heavily exposed on the coast. In, in the African continent. And um, what was the challenge was that usually if there is um, a disaster striking in the zone, human beings have to manually use imagery and come up with uh, a damage assessment of what infrastructure has been uh, affected post-disaster. That then feeds into the government's report on post-disaster needs assessment, which outlines the type of finances that the government needs to recover and reconstruct post-disaster. So it's quite a, mo a monumental work which has been put towards human beings to do. The error rate of that type of work is exceptionally high if a man undertakes that work, and it takes at least three weeks. We developed a tool to undertake what we call a RADA, RADA, Rapid Aerial Damage Assessment. And that essentially means that 
a machine is trained to pick up the damage with an error rate of 20%, which is pretty amazing. And it, in 72 hours, gives an estimate in dollar terms of how much the government needs to recover and reconstruct. So this is a real-life practical application of how a machine that was trained on many different types of examples that we fed it relevant to the development challenge that we identified, along with the national government, came up with something that was quite interesting in terms of development application and then was useful for the post-disaster recovery and reconstruction. It's a little bit of a detailed example, but I feel like when we're dealing with technology, particularly with machine learning, it's important to understand the ecology around the development challenge, and that then gives us some, a stronger basis to design a solution that meets those said challenges. Is that good? <laughs> Does that meet the needs? Yeah, it does. Um, I, I think that actually raises some some additional questions. I mean, the kind of technological developments you're talking about are very high level, possibly not access, accessible to the average person. So, Carolyn, would you like to speak a little bit more to this? Do you think people yeah. will be able to use these sorts of technologies? I mean, I think this is a really important question. What is appropriate technology? Um, and I loved what you said about, you know, the question is, what is technology? Because, of course, you know, fire is a technology. I mean, you know, and that was, that was one of our earliest, I mean, that was how we evolved as a species was through being able to cook our food and therefore getting more calories on board and therefore being able to specialize in hunting and so on. That's all thanks to the control of fire. Um, so, you know, the, the, I mean, it's very interesting that, you know, if you look at how we've evolved the way we feed ourselves over time, um, for most of human history, it was absolutely the dominant question that every society had was how they were going to feed themselves. Historically, it was always really difficult. Um, and ironically, it still is. It, it just, we just make it look as if it isn't. Um, and, you know, of course, we went from hunter-gathering, which is basically following the food around, to building cities and farming, uh, which is effectively what we still do. We've only been doing this for about, you know, five and a half thousand. So we've had cities for about five and a half thousand years. We've been farming for about 12,000 years. And farming is basically a way of bullying nature into giving you what you want. You know, so it's kind of there's good nature and bad nature. So kind of what you want to eat is good nature and what wants to eat what you want to eat is bad nature, you know. And, you know, farmers through time have cursed the weather and they've cursed pests, you know, and, and they'd pray to the gods to make the soil fertile and so on. Um, and we stopped praying to the gods when we invented chemical fertilisers in essence. Um, but if you, if, you, um, if you look at what chemical fertilisers do... Um, and we've been using them, I mean, before there were chemical fertilisers, people did discover things like, you know, if you rotate crops, then you get a better crop. Why? Because leguminous plants, they wouldn't have put it in these terms, but, you know, stick clover on a field, you know, for a season, and then when you put your potatoes back, they grow better. They didn't know why, they just noticed that was true. But, of course, the reason why is because leguminous plants can actually fix atmospheric nitrogen in the soil. Mm. And nitrogen is one of the most, I mean, well, the most, it, it's the kind of the, the limiting uh, chemical, or the limiting um, element in terms of our, our capacity to grow food organically, for example, um, which is why the enormous breakthrough, which was Justus Liebig, the chemist, um, discovering that, you know, plants basically, the key nutrients were NPK, nitrogen, potassium, and, and phosphorus, um, 
And to begin with, they used to use uh, guano, which was very, very high in, in actually all three of those, but, but mostly um, phosphorus. And, and then they began, uh, and the really key breakthrough actually was um, in just after the First World War when uh, two German chemists, uh, Harbour and Bosch, came up with a way to artificially fix nitrogen. Um, so most of the world's nitrogen is in the atmosphere, and where you want it is in the soil where the plants can get at it. And this is a process by which it's estimated that something like two-fifths of the global population is now fed, thanks to nitrogenous fertilisers made through this process, which, by the way, is very energy-hungry. But there's a problem. And the problem is that if you feed plants N, P, and K, it's like feeding your kids salt, sugar, and fat. So they, they grow big very rapidly, but not necessarily in a way that you'd like them to. And, and what happens, and the reason for... No, no, I mean, it, 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 because this stuff all happens under the ground, we can't see it, and actually we're only really starting to understand it now. The reason why organic farming is so important is because nature is just so much smarter than we are. And I hate the word smart anyway. It's smart this and smart that. It's always irritating. It's always about cutting corners. Anyway, as Ria said, it's, there's no silver bullets. Anyway, but if you look at what actually happens under the, in the soil, the plants and the soil fungi, in, this is in unploughed uh, land, uh, they form very, very strong bonds. And what ha it's a food exchange under the ground. And basically, the plants feed the soil fungi sugars, which they can make because they can do photosynthesis, and the soil fungi lap that up. And then in exchange, they give the plants micronutrients, which we need. So basically, this is the basis of soil health and, and nutritious food crops. Um, but if you bombard the plants with NPK they don't bother to forge those connections because they're already getting most of what they need. So they don't form strong mycorrhizal bonds under the, under the soil and they don't get rich in nutrients that we need. So when you eat the plant, it's very low on essential minerals compared to a plant grown in, in good soil. So this is just gives you some idea of the fact that this is why Ria's absolutely right, there are no silver bullets. You cannot, we can't replicate what nature can do with technology. Mm. What we can do is use technology to understand what nature does better and to work with it better. But with food, it's just very, very clear, that distinction. Okay. So there are no silver bullets. Neither of you think that there is some sort of technology we'll be able to develop that's going to reverse climate change? Hmm, that's my dream. Mirrors in the sky. <laughs> I would be out of business then. <laughs> but happier. Yeah, the, I would be happier yeah. and hopefully alive. Yeah. So, yeah, sometimes it's like quite a fatalistic kind of feeling when, when I'm um, working a lot on climate science-related issues. And this morning I was re reading several reports I have to switch to the tech side because it gives me some hope. Mm. Otherwise, I feel like the science is telling us that, okay, doomsday is approaching. And on the other hand, the tech side says, oh, look, there's this new cool thing which maybe could work. And I like to plug my hopes on the, you know, look, the new cool thing. But um, what, I, what I also think that um, tech can give us, and, and this is a little bit more of a 
hope that's grounded in reality is better predictive analysis. And this is where we can tap on the potential of some of the most cutting-edge technologies to understand the climate problem better and prepare ourselves better for it. So um, a lot of data is being generated through satellites, also through drone mapping, and um, many other uh, space-based technologies. The way that we can use that information is if we can understand better, let's say, migration patterns, vegetative change over time, flooding, and so on. And a lot of national governments in various countries are engaging with these head-on and developing contingency plans. For instance, in New York, they've undertaken a very expensive ongoing flood modeling initiative and building upon a lot of new technologies, including machine learning, they're able to model over time till 2050 what the flood situation and inundation will look like. And as a result of that, they're already able to transition some of their critical infrastructure, phase out the development in certain places, build buffer zones, and this is where we need to utilize tech to help us to save our um, infrastructure, but mostly save human life. And already it is being undertaken. Another exciting area that uh, tech can be used to give us deeper insights is um, what is called the social cost of carbon. So what is the cost of emission of one extra ton of carbon in the atmosphere? And this figure is something which a lot of climate scientists and economists are working using tech quite aggressively. And this helps a lot in making policy decisions because if a policymaker is able to understand this, let's say, cost-benefit type of analysis, it helps them to understand where are the vulnerabilities in the climate space and how to channel finances to build resilience better. For example, let us say, in better disaster-resilient infrastructure and so on. So I think that there are opportunities to use information that tech is giving us to be more prepared for disasters, also to map vulnerable zones, and um, increasingly as well in terms of understanding human behaviors, for example, migration patterns. And this is one of the most exciting studies which was done last year by the World Bank on um, understanding how um, people will move if climate alters in a worst-case scenario. Some of the most startling movements have been projected in highly populous places which are in hazard-exposed zones, for example, in Bangladesh. And it tells us that many of the people are likely to move towards one of the biggest deltas in the region, which is already highly populous and vulnerable to more disasters. So if we're able to preempt to a certain degree with reasonable degree of accuracy and with a slim margin of error how people will behave, if there's a worst-case climate crisis situation, it helps policymakers to already preempt and start planning with um, a bit more of a conservative type of approach. And this is where, as well, my point on the social cost of carbon is important, because at this point in time, we're dealing with a challenge that has projected big loss in the future, but at the same time, we don't know how the pendulum will swing. And if we're able to use machine learning and other um, approaches, it helps to give a bit more deeper insight with a higher degree of accuracy and less error. And that helps us as well to achieve the development goals in time for 2030. Thank you, Ria. Uh, so I'd like to kind of pick up on your point about risks to some extent, and also to get both of you to talk a little bit more about whether this technology 
that is being developed. I mean, in LSE 100, we also looked very much at the way that technology is used in food production uh, in farms, not, not just at sort of the big macro level, but for individual farmers using drones and things like this to kind of uh, apply fertilizers in precision ways and kind of minimize the impacts of pesticides and so on. Do you think these technologies are going to be widely available to people in a way that would help us immediately start to behave in a more sustainable way, to produce food in a more sustainable way? Or are these technologies actually going to increase inequality? Mm. I mean, that's a really, really important question, ownership. So, for example, in food, as we know, there are now these kind of lab, lab meat kind of developments, which is very recent, the first uh, lab-grown burger was, was bankrolled by Google, for example. That's it's only seven years ago, incredibly. Now all the big meat companies are getting into this. Um, I mean, quite apart from the kind of the, the, the moral weirdness of it, you know, do we really want to be growing meat in a lab and it's all a bit kind of spooky-dooky? Um, you know, the question of ownership to me is really fundamental. And if you asked at the beginning, what is my vision of a, a sustainable future... And Rio, I know, picked up on this, has already picked on, up on this several times. It's about um, agency and sovereignty for, for individuals. And the problem with going down these very high-tech solutions, which I think do fall into the silver bullet category, is that they're going to be owned by all the big corporates. And, and, and that's quite apart from, as I say, what's in these things. So, I mean, there's, there's different kinds of fake meat, if you like. There's the, the lab-grown burgers, which is one thing, and then there's the, the meat-based substitutes, which are another. But they're, they're actually... I mean, it's quite interesting, by the way. You know, Greg's uh, vegan sausage roll, which basically kind of quadrupled, quintupled, you know, multiplied by ten times Greg's um, profits last year, is made of corn. You know, we've had this stuff for, you know, decades. I mean, so it, it's quite interesting. It doesn't have to be high-tech. So, and I really like this idea of appropriate technology and usable technology. And I think that's really where the big answers are going to be. So, for example, again, in food, really interesting. Some, I mean, Ria's probably more on top of the stats than me, but something like 2 billion people are, in the world are still small farmers, small-scale farmers, and they, you know, so half the world is fed by you know, people just literally sort of in direct contact with the farm. Um, in many parts of the world, you know, where there was this kind of Western-style green revolution, it's been a total disaster. So, for example, in India, um, you know, where they imported Western-style technologies, um, it was really all the yields went up and everyone thought, oh, brilliant, you know, we've solved all the problems, and then the trouble started. They started running out of water, the soil became depleted, the crops began to fail because they weren't, you know, they weren't suitable to particular regions and so on, and there were mass farmer suicides and so on. Um, so I think, if you like, I mean, Bill Gates talks about bringing, you know, the Green Revolution to Africa. That really, really worries me. Because, I mean, there's another really interesting study done by Jules Pretty, um, where he looked at, uh, you know, farm pro productivity in the global south. And again, I mean, this is probably more your world, well, I mean, it's both of our worlds. Yeah. He discovered that actually often if farmers stopped chucking chemicals on the ground and went back to more traditional forms of farming, their yields went up. You know, so it's because it's more appropriate to the way people currently produce food in that part of the world. 
And there's another really important thing I think we have to mention that I didn't... I mean, the reason you write a book is because it's the equivalent of talking for 300 hours non-stop, which you never get to do normally. But, um, you know, but, so the downside of that is that it's monologue and I prefer dialogue. But anyway, um, we have to ask the question, uh, you know, and it's raised by the question of our future relationship with technology, of kind of what are we going to all be doing all day? Right. You know, so this robotization of everything, I think, is a real threat... And I'm not saying it's, it's not opportunity as well, but I think we have to manage this. So we have to retain enough interesting stuff for people to do in the future, because as we've briefly mentioned already, a good future has to be one where our pleasure doesn't come from consumption alone. Mm. Why I'm interested in food and why I think food is such an interesting lens for asking these questions, it's, it's the one thing that we are going to have to carry on consuming every day. So let's really value that and enjoy that because there's a huge amount of pleasure to be got, both in in consuming food, but also producing food for people if food is valued. So if we value food and we pay the true cost of food, uh, things like industrial livestock production become totally unaffordable, which they are anyway. It's just that we're not paying for it in the shop, which is why we carry on doing it. Um, and then, you know, local, artisanal, seasonal, organic, etc., regenerative, becomes very affordable because it is the only way of producing food that's affordable. Also, it provides good jobs for people. You know, I think we need more... So, for example, in America in the 19, yeah, 1900, something like 65% of the population were farmers. America was a nation of farmers. Now it's 2%, and it's got one of the most industrialised farming sectors in the world, as we know. Actually, farming can be a good life, if what you do is valued, and I'm not saying let's go back to being peasants, but I am saying look at this country, look at the huge rise in, for example, you know, artisanal cheeses. I mean, you know, in 1970, a block of cheese in the UK looked like a sort of a, a breeze block, a yellow breeze block. There was just one kind of cheese, and it was mostly made in Canada. Um, you know, and now there's something... We've got more artisanal cheeses in this country now than France has. I mean, this is insane. This is people leaving the city to go and set up a small-scale dairy, et cetera, et cetera, because they want to do this. And, of course, artisanal cheeses, you have to... They are expensive. Or I, not yeah. to me. They're just... They're what good food costs, basically. But, of course, if you value food, then this, this represents a massive societal change. But I think it's a change we need, because we need to go from getting pleasure out of consuming to get a, getting pleasure out of making, growing, mending, sharing, being sociable being nice to each other, and eating together, and all the things that don't cost the earth. Okay. Thank you very much. Rio, would you like to quickly respond to any of that? I guess the way I'm interpreting it is um, from the development side of things. And uh, I want to go a little bit into history, because I think that that might help in giving insight for the future and to answering your question. So if we look at the development model of the East Asian economies, we can see that they use tech to leapfrog. And they use technology to bridge a lot of critical development divides. Particularly, let's say, the case of Taiwan, major enhancement in development of semiconductors and other high-tech, and they were able to rapidly emerge as one of the leading economies. And their development is still in, in one of the highest development categories at this point in time. So I think technology has the ability to bridge development divides, but it can also result in um, greater divides between regions in the world. 
and um, I will explain a little bit more about that as I'm as I'm going forward. I think one of the biggest challenges with the leapfrogging is that um, whilst you might be able to bridge some type of tech divide to achieve some development goals, it might still result in divides in country. For example, rural-urban divides, gender divides, general have and have not divides in terms of poverty levels in country. And um, no case is stronger than if we look at highly populous nations in South Asia which have a high mobile penetration rate but still have extreme levels of poverty as well as food insecurity, which speaks to your point, and um, a lack of an innovation environment also sustained by lack of public funding in those areas of um, development. That said, if we look at the macro picture, zoom out of... Um, the global of the regional inequalities to the global picture. The global spending on R&D uh, as of 2016 was uh, $3 trillion, which is a huge sum. But if we zoom into the micro level of um, how that $3 trillion is being um, interpreted in um, regional but also in country level, we find that development divides are also being mirrored in the technological space. For example, in the high-tech manufacturing space, sub-Saharan Africa and Oceania lagged behind versus, let's say, North America and Europe, which were really going forth so quickly. So this is a big challenge because each country comes with its own historical context, with its own story. Yes, tech can be used to bridge some of the development divides, but that doesn't mean it will bridge every single divide within the country. And I think that's a space for a lot of multilateral action. And... Um, is also representative of the current global trade architecture because um, as one of my professors at LSE, uh, Dr. Kenneth Chadlan, used to say, a lot of the divides in development are also a result of the un unequal rules governing the flows of goods and services. If we look at global trade agreements such as the GATT and the TRIPS, it does put developing countries at less of a competitive edge. Further, if we look at agreements, including the Paris Agreement, there is a phase, there is a, a clear understanding among some of the developing nations that whilst they are a part of the discussion on sustainability, they wish to have differentiated responsibility because they did not benefit of the carbon boom, which many advanced economies already have. So I think that, um, again, whilst tech can be used to provide some of solutions to meet these bigger development challenges. There is a historical legacy which we should consider and that we should also be cognizant of as we plan for the future. And I think our planning for the future should be rooted in general optimism. I think multilateralism has had a lot of successes, and I have cited this one before at a panel last week, but if we look at um, the Montreal Protocol, for example, and the good work that was done in ozone, in prevention of ozone depletion, that is one accord that that had um, a really strong impetus, and a lot of technology was used as well to bridge some of those development challenges. But that being said, we have to again be mindful that a solution of north-south transfer of technology without attendant financial mechanisms such as cutting off the tariff barriers, lack of subsidization, and so on, it really needs to be addressed in a holistic sense. Because if the rules are not equal from the outset, the solution will also be unequal, and it will also result in further exacerbating existing development and indeed poverty divides. So that's a little bit of my thinking around it. Thanks. Thank you both for that. I think uh, those two comments were both kind of laid out very optimistic visions for the future and definitely outlined paths that we should 
strongly consider. And it's a perfect time, I think, to hand over to the audience and invite some questions. Um, so we're going to collect two to three questions, and if you can wait to ask your question until the stewards get to you with the roving mics, I would appreciate it. And if you could please tell us who you are, that would be very helpful. So let's see. Um, could we start with, let's see, I wanted, could we start with the, the person in the sweatshirt over here, in the green sweatshirt? Sorry. The person with her. The person, yes. Yeah, Hi. Hi. Hello. Yes, so I'm Lydia. Thank you very much. It's really interesting. Uh, so my question is um, for the panellists, if there was one policy or investment the UK government would take forward, what would it be for you? Okay, and we'll just collect a couple more questions. Sorry, how about the gentleman right here in the front? Um, you discussed whether um, technology could cure climate change or fix climate change. Um, I mean, most technology development is done to make money. So any other purpose for developing new technology is forced. You have to struggle to make the point or push a government to do it and so on. So, so we can, of course, develop technology to um, fix climate change, but we can't afford to which is really the issue. We're, most scientists are developing the next model of, you know, the next car. I think more scientists work on car development than anything else, um, not on our sustainable future. Thank you. And then finally, if we can go to this gentleman in the green sweater. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, the name's Ewan Grant. I uh, actually come from a law enforcement background. I've... Um, worked on um, World Bank and UN programs in Ukraine and particularly Yemen, um, where I have seen the dark side of the UN, but not, I might stress, in the fields you work in. My question, <laughs> seriously, I, I can assure you of that. Um, my question is based on a number of points that you've both hinted at, um, how in, in applying the technology, particularly advanced computer technology, including out on the ground, how do you deal with the Boeing 737 MAX problem of computer software people, many of whom whose relationship with the real world is somewhat strained. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I've, seen, I've seen the consequences of this firsthand. Thank you. Those are great questions to start off with. Can we, Carolyn, would you like to begin? Yes, I mean, I'm very happy to answer the, well, all of them, but particularly the first one, because I actually have a, a policy um, that I'm proposing in my book, Cytopia, which I should probably just explain what that means, by the yes, way. Please, Sorry. Um, the book is called Cytopia, um, and it's a word I invented as a real-life alternative to utopia, which is an ideal place and therefore doesn't exist, whereas Cytopia just means food place, so it's from the Greek word sitos for food and topos for place, um, and it's basically, as I say, it's acknowledging that we live in a world shaped by food, which is what I kind of established or, or discovered, I suppose, with my first book. And so this book is really saying, okay, what are we going to do about it? And so to come back to your policy question, what I think we should do about it is, is I think we should internalize the true cost of food. So what does that mean? It means that if you're chopping down bits of Amazon 
to create grazing for cattle, then that, you know, a burger ought to cost something like $200 and not $2. Now, what that really tells you is you shouldn't be chopping down Amazon. And, of course, we know that anyway. But I suppose it's a way of of realigning economics so that food is at the centre of economics. And we know at the moment that our economics is is kind of really not fit for purpose on many, many levels. Um, And... I realise that this is a a deeply controversial and even revolutionary thing to do because, as I said, for the last 250 years we've been evolving this idea of a good life where the true cost of life is externalised, you know, and we've just run out of road, you know, and, and it's a really, really crunch time we've arrived at, and I think part of the issue, and it actually then bleeds into some of these other questions, like how do we afford stuff? Well, how... I mean, if we can't afford to invest in technologies or behaviours that are going to save our species, how screwed can we get? You know, I mean, we, we, we have to afford this, and therefore we, we need a new value system. Um, and for me, because we know um, that people hate being told what to do and hate being told what they can't do and hate being told, you know, what to eat and all of these things, because, our, again, our idea of a good life is predicated on you know, endless consumption, endless choice, sort of flying to Disneyland whenever you want and all this kind of stuff. So for me, um, the beauty of doing it through food is that food actually brings pleasure and we're all hardwired to enjoy eating. And so actually, if you can lay out a vision of what a world looks like where food is at the core and love is at the core, because, you know, good food has to be made with love and is made with love... I think we can pick up some of the things that we dropped along the way um, because it's really interesting. I mean, again, slightly longer conversation than we have time for probably even today, even with one of the speakers missing, but nevertheless. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of late capitalist logic of a good life is about nothing you've got at the moment is good enough, but if you work really hard, you can get it better later. So a bigger car, a bigger fridge, a better this, a better that. Now, obviously, part of that logic is that through, you know, we are making, as it were, life better in a way, but actually a lot of the things that we've discarded along the way also give pleasure. So, for example, I mean, food is just a very, very obvious one. Again, everyone's too busy to to cook. Nobody has time to cook, so I don't know what everyone's doing, so too busy to cook. I have plenty of time to cook. I probably spend about three hours a day cooking, but then that's my choice. Um, you know, but, but everyone's too busy to cook. Why are they too busy? Well, either they've got a, a, a shitty... Sorry, I said that word. Um, you know... <laughs> I was thinking, don't swear. And, and anyway, they've got a, a very bad gig, gig economy job. You know, they work in a warehouse. There's absolutely no pleasure being derived in their day job at all. So what do they do when they come home? They kind of, you know, they, they binge on Netflix. They order a takeaway from Deliveroo, deliver by a slave on a bike. You know, it's kind of, it's all compensation stuff. This goes back to, sorry, I'm... It goes back to E.F. Schumacher's wonderful book in the 1970s when, you know... The 1970s, by the way, is they got this stuff back then. We just haven't been listening for 50 years. It's all there. But basically, his big point is that man the consumer, as he puts it, and man the producer are the same person. So shrinking the work well so that there's no joy in it in order to sort of compensate later is ludicrous because it's the same person. So let's make work 
enjoyable again. And this means valuing things, and this means making things, and this means taking time to grow food properly with nature and to cook it and all the rest. So how do we afford it? is a question of values. We have to just decide what really matters in life. And the beautiful thing is, if you really look at what makes a good life, all the stuff that matters to people, family connections, sense of esteem, sense of achievement, it's all outside the economy anyway. It's all stuff you can do outside the economy. Boeing 737 also fits into this completely because... Um, and it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about the problem is not the technology itself, it's our relationship with it. We have to. I often say technology is like a dog you take on a walk. Um, it's really useful. It's good companion. Um, but if it starts running off and worrying sheep, bad news. You know, so you are still, the, you know, you are still, you have to still be in control. Um, and you have to be the master. So I think our, part of our problem at the moment is that we've forgotten that we... Technology is serving us. It's exactly as Ria said at the beginning. It's serving us, but we have to know what we want to do with it. So we have to have a vision of a good life that is a vision. <laughs> and, of course, technology is going to be part of that, but we have to know that first. It's not saying, oh, how can we use technology to do blah, blah, blah. Oh, we've got new technology that does this. Amazing. You know, what's it actually for? So, so and, and as I say, the kind of... Um, all the answers lie right in front of you, in front of your face. They're all so obvious they're too big to see. It's sociability, it's love, it's taking care of each other, it's trust, it's building society back. And, and many of the ills that we face now are because we've forgotten what the point is. So on the question, I think one of the biggest problems is um, with respect to flooding. Last year, I was in Yorkshire for a month, and um, there was a lot of challenges there because the valley tended to get flooded. But there were no measures that were mandated for resilience against flooding. Urban flooding is also a very salient problem even in the city of London. So I think um, resilience building and also better um, measures for protection of critical infrastructure is quite important. On the other side as well, I feel like there are further opportunities for enhancement of policy with respect to renewable energy. There used to be subsidies for wind, but I believe that was removed. And I think that is removing incentive for innovation in renewable energy, which also then may make greater reliance on um, carbon-intensive uh, sources. So those are two opportunities within the UK that I feel um, might be relevant to your question. In respect to affordable tech, I think this is exactly what I was trying to allude to before. The current financial rules through a lot of these larger-scale multilateral agreements have resulted in um, trade and tariff barriers for developing countries that are quite poor. And what it then does is puts them at an automatic disadvantage to avail of technological solutions that could solve some of the most critical development challenges, particularly in the climate space. So I think this is something which um, requires a little bit more attention, perhaps even at the multilateral level, but also through some of the national level um, and bilateral trading mechanisms, which can build for protectionist measures against this type of um, activity. On the other hand, I think um, incentivizing innovation can also um, result in creating a more competitive environment, which then drives down the costs of technologies. Because if multiple players are coming up with solutions, those then have a bear as well um, on the market situation for the price of those technologies. I think another aspect is um, transfer of technologies. 
and the rules governing the transfer of technologies. Because if we look at um, north-south transfer, that might also be an opportunity for the north to be able to export less expensive technologies to the south. And also if we look at, let's say, domestic technology sharing or regional technology sharing, even within the south blocks, it could result in um, cheaper prices for a technology. One fact to highlight as well is that um, some of the technologies in the clean tech space like photovoltaic and wind technologies are also um, much more cheaper than they used to be. If we look at, for example, China as a provider of photovoltaic, which is basically um, the solar panels, the price has gone down by 80% since, since they were first manufactured. So I feel like um, through competition, through innovation, and also through creating a competitive environment, and also um, providing the manufacturing power to, or let's say developing countries to take on the manufacturing power themselves, it results in um, less expensive technologies and a more, let's say, even technology transfer sort of playing field. In terms of the dark side uh, of technology, I think when you were saying the Boeing case, you meant more like the black box problem. And this is a fundamental problem which people in the tech space are dealing with because what's happening with machine learning and with um, the way that things are evolving, as machines are mimicking human thought process more, the deductive power and understanding of how a decision is reached by a machine is getting more obscure and opaque. This is a huge problem from the regulatory perspective and from the legal perspective, and is especially challenging if we consider um, vulnerable populations and also issues like personal data. So this black box pro problem is known, it's acknowledged, and I think at this time there are ways and means which many people in the tech space, including industry experts and so on, are first off talking about it, but also developing ways to demystify the machine's decision-making process. Of course, this is an extremely complex process and requires a lot of dollars, um, but um, there, is, there is some kind of movement on this space. I don't think at this time many UN agencies are using this type of black box technology. It's, it's much too advanced, and also due diligence has not been done around some of these technologies. So um, this is something which is not being engaged as much as um, it is by the private sector at this point in time. So of course there are le legal and regulatory aspects which provide a lot of scope for um, further work on this topic, so not all has been done. And I think this is also where foresight and horizon scanning become important, because when we're dealing with tech, we cannot understand what a tech will look like in three to five years. If we went back in time, we wouldn't even have envisioned that we could use this type of tech to be able to deal with complex solutions. And some of the tech which we are working with closely now, like for example, deep machine learning and so on, that was just a theoretical concept by some you know, people sitting in MIT. And now it's a reality. So the way that tech is moving is highly organic, but I believe that the best type of tech is usually developed without too much of heavy regulation, and that's how the World Wide Web also came about, without that heavy regulation. Of course, with the same an analogy, we have the darker side of the web, which is called the dark web, which is, is something that we don't interact with, with in, in, our daily, um, in our daily use, you know, if, if we're using it for good. 
But more often than not, I think that the web has potentials for good, as does tech, as does AI, as does machine learning. So I think there's different sides to it. And if we understand the complexities, we're able to plan a bit for those type of challenges that we foresee. And um, lastly, I think that um, industry expert knowledge is, is quite critical, and that's why there's um, a sustained interaction, at least in the international development space, through mechanisms such as the UN Sustainable Business Compact, and also um, with technology partners who can provide us relevant expertise, because a lot of the expertise is coming from the private sector, from some of the tech companies that do have some knowledge, but also from other um, research and um, academia as well. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, further questions? Okay, we have the gentleman in the back, in the gray. Hello. Hi, my name is Ellie. Um, quick question. I mean, we, if we, um, so uh, c climate and the environment, we can think about it as a public good, right? So if London is doing great or the UK is doing great at uh, fighting for uh, climate and for a sustainable future, there are other countries that are not doing this. And, the, and then um, basically it's not like we have progressed. So since it's a public good, there should be a global, um, a global collaboration. Now, in terms of global collaboration, I'd like to ask you, where are we? Are we, uh, are we making progress? Or other countries, because they want to make profits today, they're ignoring global change in the future, and will we wake up when it's already too late to have a sustainable future? Thank you. And next question to the women in the black, here just right by you. Um, Hi. Thanks. Uh, Ooh, oh, two women in black. Two women in black. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we can take both of your questions, and then we have one more at the front. So we'll just take four questions in this round. But, okay, go, uh, you go first in the green, and then in the back we'll go. Okay. Uh, hi, my name is Alexandra, and I've got a question for Ria. So you've been talking about how data analysis and machine learning can be used to prevent possible cataclysms in the future and to predict what dangers we are about to face. And uh, you mentioned that this needs to be done in order to prevent the worst-case climate situation. So I'm just wondering, what exactly do you mean by the worst-case climate situation? Thank you. And then the women in the back in the black. <laughs> thanks. Um, thanks to both speakers. Um, I have a question for Carolyn. I, um, so I completely agree uh, with you, you know, that we need to get to a place where we're working with nature. Um, and, but we've got to get really practical now and, and talk about how we do that. Um, and, you know, if we're moving to a place where food is more valued and, and sometimes that does mean more expensive, what, how do you, um, what's your plan for a transition, basically, so that the people who are producing our food, small-scale producers, are already struggling to get into markets and feel like they have to use fertilizers and chemicals and monoculture... Mm plus poor communities, particularly in the South, who are already spending a massive proportion of their income on mm. food and can't afford to pay anymore. Um, what's your plan or what, you know, what's a good plan out there for transitioning so that those people aren't the first to suffer? Mm. Thank you. And then the last question, if we could have the, not the last question entirely, but for this round, uh, the women in the pink scarf. So I'm going to ask you to, or one of you to, <laughs> to come over here. Thank you. 
Uh, Linda Korsha, um, I'm glad that damaging trade rules have been mentioned. Um, the whole thrust of trade rules uh, is actually antithetical to sustainability and to climate change action. Yet the, the, the reality is that trade rules, for instance the WTO rules, override other global structures. And that cannot change because that's not what they're there for. That, that change. They, that can't be redirected or anything under the current structures. It's not the purpose of them. So rather than just a little bit more attention, as you've mentioned, should the WTO actually be abandoned, you think, for a different overriding structure that prioritizes sustainability and climate change? Okay. So, Rhea, would you like to kick us off? Yeah. So, um on the public good question, thanks for framing it that way because indeed um, a healthy and good functioning environment and, um, and an ecosystem is critical for our survival, so we must consider it as such. But in terms of where are we right now, I think um, the world has been in a terrible state in terms of the health of the climate. We've seen um, unprecedented burning in um, different parts of the world, physical burning, but also um, climatic abnormalities, which are also impacting food systems, which are impacting indigenous communities' lives and livelihoods, and also resulting in the extinction of whole species. So obviously, I think the current state of affairs, business as usual, is not working. And scores of academicians, United Nations, as well as these bigger, bigger agreements, including the Paris Agreement, have outlined this ad nauseum. So I think that's the current state of situation. But as I said, in terms of the potential that tech can enable us to predict the impacts, there are projected winners and losers. And this is one of the biggest challenges that the climate crisis is going to pose to us. Because it might be that the country that is one of the biggest losers didn't contribute to the climate problem to begin with, which is why the climate justice issue also becomes quite critical. And overall, I would like to feel some kind of optimism for the future, but I think that it requires a lot more accelerated and urgent action, because at the pace at which things are going as of now, it isn't enough and it isn't quick enough. And also, the approaches being used are too mild. And I have some proposals of how that could be countered, but that will also feed into the third question with respect to the trade rules. So I'll come back to that one in a minute. So in terms of, um, again, as, as was mentioned in the second question, um, you know, I, I had alluded to the um, dangers of um, extreme climatic events and how tech can be used to help us to prepare for that. The way I define worst-case climate scenario is um, if there is a warming, a global warming above 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is um, agreed by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is the science also backing the Paris Agreement. So that's the way that I'm looking at it. But it doesn't actually take Einstein to tell us that um, at the current way things are going and with the current business-as-usual approach, the frequency, intensity, and severity of uh, natural hazard-induced events will be rising exponentially. 
and um, we can uh, foresee that um, the damages and impacts, loss of life, also um, affected infrastructure will be way more than uh, we can um, imagine at this point in time. That's not to be alarmist, it's based on a lot of scientific modeling which has been done on the topic, as well as um, some of the most um, earliest pioneering work which was done by uh, Nicholas Stern uh, of the, as part of the Stern Review. Um, and um, a lot of that work is now associated with the Grantham Institute for Climate Change housed at the LSC. So I'll come back to the trade rules part. Um, Indeed, you, you have raised a very critical issue because the challenge is if countries are in compliance strictly with the trade rules as they stand now, of which WTO is the custodian, they will default on the climate agreement elements which are outlined in um, the Paris Agreement. And this is something which I've also been grappling with, but I have done some research as well as um, others in the sector that I'm working with around climate resilient trade flows. And this is actually possible. And a lot of that is possible through um, perhaps having a layer of protectionist measures, but also having um, a layer of climate friendly measures or rules that must be incorporated in a legally binding manner. For example, those could include green procurement, which is mandatory, um, aspects related to tariff and non-tariff barriers in the climate-resilient tech space, and also in terms of intellectual property rights, which is less talked about, but is another very contentious issue. Because if we consider, for example, the links towards resilient agriculture, a lot of genetic modification is is being undertaken to manipulate species so that they can survive more intense type of weather trends. And this as well um, requires a lot of um, attention in the IPR space. So my sense is that um, whilst adhering to the existing trade mechanisms, because they have worked reasonably well, a layer be added as well on the climate resilient side, which is mandatory for adherence. If not, then trade-related sanctions will be imposed upon the defaulting entities. Furthermore, I think that WTO's redressal mechanism must have a track for environmental-related disputes. Thus far, the dispute redressal mechanism is working very well for trade-related disputes, where governments will go and lodge complaints, and WTO has an appellate body, which is a legal body that is having the final ruling on those matters. So I think we must have that track um, strong and, and going, so that there's a legal dimension to defaulting against environmental commitments. And finally, I think that on bigger legal issues, and this is a mechanism which is already active but is less used, the International Court of Justice must intervene. And the International Court of Justice has an environmental chamber that is uh, deputed to deal with environmental matters, and they have passed some very strong rulings that serve as, as an example to um, industry or any other representatives, including national governments, to not violate, for example, the sovereignty of indigenous peoples or also of um, bio, um, uh, biospheres or important ecosystems that will be lost irretrievably if we act in the business-as-usual mode. Thank you. We have about one minute left, but I'll give you the last word, Carolyn. Can you do it in one minute? Uh, well, I, I can talk until you stop me. Um, <laughs> I can always do that. Um, I mean, thank you to Ria for sort of for outlining that. And I mean, I think, you know, it's really, really important. We need, as I said earlier on with respect to coronavirus, I think, you know, we 
We have to have much, much more powerful global governance systems now. I mean, we, we don't... We have to pull together. Um, I think that moment is arriving. Um, there's an absolute car crash between the business-as-usual model, which is going in precisely the opposite direction of where we need to go. We have to just man up or woman up and, you know, or LGBT. You know, just, we have to... It's impossible, isn't it? But we just have to um, rise up and, and, and come up with this, this... We're all in this together with a vision for a good life that, um, that is actually going to, going to allow us to thrive into the, into the end of the century. So, yes, absolutely, we need new global governance. Um, in terms of the transition that I foresee, it's all in here, by the way, so um, in the detailed version. But, I mean, we need a land reform because you can't flourish without land. And, um, basically, we have to get closer to nature and we have to get our pleasure from, as I say, non-consumptive activities. And n proximity to nature and to one another are the two key resources that allow us to do this. So, uh, as I said, it is actually all in there in some detail. That took eight years to write, and I've got a minute. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> but um, it is possible, by the way. I'm also an optimist. It is possible, but we have to be brave and act. Yeah. Well, thank you all very much. you for coming and for the brilliant questions. I'm sorry we didn't have time for more of them and thanks to our speakers. Uh, Carolyn's book is for sale outside and she'll be sticking around to sign the books. If you'd like to have a quick chat with her or get her to sign a book, she'll be outside in just a minute. And thank you all very much for coming.